So Habakkuk 2, and we will start this morning at verse 6, and we'll read through verse 11. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall not they rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. So far, let us pray. O oh God, as we reflect on that last song we sang, everything to the praise of your glorious grace, everything planned from all eternity. Lord, truly we are nothing. Truly we, we rebelled. And Lord, to sit here this morning too, to be, be among a people that is saved, to be among a people that is called what a mercy that is. And we pray, Lord, that you would please now speak to us through your word. Lord, give wings to the word this morning that it may fly into hearts, that it may land. And Lord, that you would please effect great change. Please give me wisdom as a mere worm to bring the word faithfully. Lord, truly, we depend upon you. Lord, nothing we bring. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's just remember where we've been in the book of Habakkuk. For most of you, I hope it's review, but I think it's important that we kind of remind ourselves of what's going on. So first of all, the first chapter, we see Judas, Judah, the, the southern nation, Judah's wickedness caused Habakkuk to cry out to God for covenant justice. And so he's thinking within the bounds of the covenant people. We saw that God had already answered what seemed like not being an answer. Because God was already bringing justice, but it wouldn't come from within the covenant community. It would come from without as Babylon comes storming across from the further lands. Chaldea, we learned, would be even more ruthless than Judah itself, which then makes Habakkuk cry out again, Oh God, how could you do this? Making things seemingly worse, bringing a worse people in to judge a less worse people. And the answer will come in chapter 2. We see in a vision, which Habakkuk is to patiently wait for, as we are to be people on the wall expecting God's answers. And we saw in the vision that there's two foundational, two fundamental ways to live. And they are foundational to all of life, foundational for you and me today. And that is living by pride, pride of self-adulation, self-accomplishment, self-merit, or living in faith and continued faithfulness as we live in this broken world. And from there, we see that the vision continues to speak five woes, which are like ominous sayings with shock and sobriety, soberness. And they, last time we looked at the first woe, starting in verse 6, and we saw in the first woe simply that the plunderer would be plundered as a foundational summary of that woe. There was a lot more there, um, and you can definitely revisit that as the sermon gets put online. Today we're going to look at the second woe, which is really about evil gain being judged. And I have three points to bring out from this, these sets of verses from 9 through 11. A soaring house, a shameful house, and a speaking house. So a soaring house, shameful house, and a speaking house. So first of all, a soaring house... Notice the text says, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house. A house in the Bible doesn't just refer to a building, as we would talk about a house. It actually refers to an estate and a dynasty, something that carries on to the next generation. So basically the woe is though to those who fatten their estate over the backs of others, as Babylon does, as it plunders the nations 
and builds its dynasty and its estate up. And they aren't just hoarding for themselves. Nebuchadnezzar building his big castle isn't just for him. It's for his posterity, his children, so that through his children, his legacy can live on. And that kind of resides in the heart of man to want their legacy, something of themselves, to live on through their children. And so it's not surprising that Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean uh, uh, lords want to live in the same way. It's called in the Bible here evil covetousness, or as the Hebrew could also be translated as evil gain. And the word is used for cutting off a threat. That's, the, that's behind this word, evil gain. In other words, the way they work about building their estate is through cutting off others. It's like a lawnmower. We'll cut everybody in the way and plunder the harvest for ourselves. So there's violence and extortion um, in this evil covetousness. Now it's very convenient to go into this world, especially young people, if you look at your future ahead of you and think, oh, what, what industry am I going to go into? What am I going to do? And once you're in the business world, sly business deals can be very convenient. It's easy to go into the job and to squander the boss's time on your phone. And to be paid for it. Well, because after all, I get paid by the hour. I just sign in and out. You can waste a lot of time. But it's actually ill-gotten gain if you are spending the boss's time on yourself. Sometimes at the checkout line, at the grocery store, the teller can make a mistake in your favor. What do you do? Especially if you've seen it. Do you walk out or do you say something? If you know and you walk out, is that ill-gotten gain? We have a society where theft is becoming more commonplace, taking what belongs to others. And so the Bible, speaking through Babylon, this mammoth empire, says a woe to those who use and build their empires, their estates, their inheritance on ill-gotten gain. Do you remember... Joab in the Bible, who took vengeance on Abner in the Bible. And what did he leave behind? What heritage was to this mighty captain of Israel, who even at times rightly rebuked David? But because of his vengefulness, the Bible says this, let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house and let there not fail from the house of Joab, so from his posterity, one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. In others, because of his ill-gotten gain over Abner, who was also a chief captain among Israel, a curse landed on his household. Do you remember Gehazi in the Bible? Remember, Elisha didn't want to take Naaman's um, gifts after <coughs> Naaman was healed. Gehazi lies, makes up a nice story, gets the gain for himself. And the Lord speaking through Elisha says this, The leprosy therefore that Naaman sh shall had shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. God is very aware of what we have, how we got it, what we do with it, and what it can do to the next generation. Now there is in the Bible lawful gain, right gain, and that's really what we should be focused on, isn't it? There is a right way to honestly work for our substance. There is a right way to increase our goods. The Bible says in Proverbs 19:13, houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. A right and wise gain is from the Lord. It is good then, people, parents, but even young people as you plan ahead, to think ahead for your children and for your children's children. And although the Lord and his providence may see it otherwise, we do have to ask, what are we planning to leave behind to our children, to the next generation? Are you somebody who likes to regularly bring the bank account close to zero? 
Or is your time at home or at work not productive? Are we squandering a lot of minutes when it could be invested? How do we teach our children about the future? Do we actually give them principles of how to prepare and plan? Children, do you know that we are accountable? Adults, do you know we are accountable with what we do and with what we have, for what we have? And especially in light of a culture that lives on credit cards and on government handouts, how do we consider what it means to be a steward of what God has given us. Now we have to realize that sometimes a son is only as good with a fork as his father was with a rake. In other words, not everybody is as gifted necessarily in everything. Some only know how to spend and not to invest. Some only know how to hoard and not to be generous givers as God calls us to. And so think about principles of right gain for your next generation. On top of that though, probably the most important question to ask is what are we leaving behind as a spiritual heritage, spiritual gain? Will the next generation be blessed with the spiritual investments that you made in them when they were under your roof? Is yours a home where the word of God is central? Is yours a home where Christ is not a concept but a king, the king, an inheritance in which the rich gospel of Christ is the undergirding of all questions of discipline and justice and mercy and grace. Do biblical principles undergird decisions? Do we buy these things? Is this right? Do we apply biblical concepts? Whatever your duties and responsibilities may be at home, preparing meals, cleaning diapers, washing dishes, or doing homeschooling, or responsibilities at work, welding, managing, fixing. How do you consider these things, all those different tasks? Do you consider it a job or a vocation? Do you consider it a career or a calling? Vocation and calling was something that the reformers recovered. It means it comes from God. It means we are called to particular duties and responsibilities. As Martin Luther would write early in the Reformation, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. That's vocation. Let's learn to bring vocation back into our duties, into all of our duties, whether at school, at home, or at the job. Now, some of us can look at the spiritual heritage that was given to us from our parents with much gratitude, but whether we had a great home that was nestled in the richness of spiritual life or whether we didn't grow up in that, whether we came from a non-Christian home. At some level, it doesn't matter. Well, it does. It has bearing. But what do we do with it? Do we seek to improve, to build upon, to grow, or to coast? What are we doing with what we've been given? Do we seek a deeper application of the counsels of God to all of life? And that challenge is in front of each one of us. I'm just bringing out these exhortations to call you and me to reformation, to continual evaluation, to continually reflect upon the home and the dynasty we are leaving behind. Because, for example, listen what Paul says to those who used to be Thieves, stealing, in whatever way. He doesn't even tell us how. He says this, Ephesians 4.28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. And then this, the purpose, that he may have to give to him that needeth. And so reform, to get rid of what's wrong and build upon that which is right so you can bless others. Those are principles that we are called to do. 
All right, back to the text. Babylon, busy with evil gain, it says in the text, is so that he may set his nest on high. He's like an eagle that goes high up, builds his nest away from snakes and other threats so he can loom and look over everything else. We saw the eagle earlier. Do you remember where we saw it in this book? It was in chapter 1, verse 8. It was alluded to as well. It says of Babylon's coming at the end of verse 8, it says, They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. There we saw the eagle can come from afar and swoop in. It's the offensive eagle. But here, it's the defensive eagle. He'll take to hoard up high, safe and secure, so he can keep it for himself. Offensive to become defensive. Babylon thinks their empire is impenetrable. In one of his own inscriptions, King Nebuchadnezzar, we've seen this in inscriptions, it says that one of the chief purposes for his realm was for the strengthening of the walls of Babylon to make an everlasting name for his reign. He also prayed to his god Marduk. He says, I pray for life for many generations, as abundant posterity, children, a secure throne, and long, a long reign. And then he says to his God, O oh, grant thy gift. So you can see where he's busy with. And this nest up high, think about it. When, when you get rich people that hoard and take and, and cheat their way into richdoms, it can be very comfortable. And it can look enticing to others. And it's like, man, I want what that guy has. Proverbs 18.11 says, The rich man's wealth is his strong city. And as a high wall in his own Conceit. Because when you stand over others, you can look down on the rest. There have been wealthy, very wealthy Christians who nonetheless lived among the people. They were rulers, but they never stood over their subjects. But think of the bondage that comes with this kind of evil gain, an evil conscience comes with an evil gain because it doesn't come alone. And an evil conscience then is always suspicious of others. It's always fearful. It's worried others are going to take their stuff. And like we know from Stalin, will always live with enemies. And so what do they tend to do? Eliminate them. I remember once talking with an estate lawyer many years ago and he bemoaned the fact that many times he was part of um, executing wills and at the point of massive farms going through this, this process, family squabbles started. It was once a very humble, good family. At the point of wealth, completely fell apart. Brothers and sisters didn't want to talk to each other anymore. That's a sad heritage. That is a sad um, building of a nest. We see our nation, Canada, right now, thriving on principles of rivalry, discontentment, accumulation, keeping up with the Joneses, and the lodestar of social media, envy, envy. You think that's going to bring a woe to Canada, to this nation? Let's consider these things. Let's look at Babylon as challenges for reformation in our own lives. Now, Babylon's motive is very simple. It says that he may be delivered from the power of evil. That's what he wants to do, right? That's why he does all this stuff. That's why he builds his nest on high. The word for the power of evil is interesting because it can also be translated as the palm of evil, smacked on the head, as it were. Normally, it's the victim who needs protection from the palm, from getting hit. But now it's the oppressor who is playing the victim, which is crazy. The way the Bible works this together is really quite something, because he's basically saying, in your wealth and in building your lofty nest, you're actually a victim here. You're a victim to your own greed, you're a victim to your own wealth, and you're worried about getting hit. If we're worried about self-preservation, 
That's what's going to happen. Ironically, Babylon was so busy trying to avert any woe, any threat, and they went high, right? That's what it says, a nest, really high up. But as J.P. Lang, the commentator, says, he says, flee as high as you may. God is always still higher. And so let us remember and reflect on the fact that it is foolish to think that we are ever out of reach of the Almighty. And it is actually the most secure thought to think that we are actually within his reach, within his arms. Because then we know we can live according to his ways. God said of Edom, in a similar type of passage of building a nest, in Jeremiah forty-nine sixteen, he says this, Thy terribleness has deceived thee, and the pride of thine heart, O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rocks, way high, and that holdest the heights of the hills, though thou shouldest make thy nest as high as an eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. Anytime you see Babylon in the Bible, especially here in constructing its high citadels, you must think of the Tower of Babel, which was to do what? What do they say? Do you remember? To reach unto the heavens. We will make for ourselves a name. It's exactly what Babylon does. And interestingly, in Isaiah 14, guess who Babylon gets likened with, who he gets compared with? Isaiah 14, with Lucifer, the devil, where it says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now, here's the interesting thing about Babylon. If you know your geography, where's Babylon located? Is it on hills and on lofty places? No, it's actually in a massive plain on flat areas on both sides of the Euphrates. And so the image of an eagle's nest is not because Babylon can boast mountains and physical protections from mountains. So what do they do? They build it for themselves. This is wholly about the accomplishments of man. Man who is low seeking to build himself up. This is wholly about the work of man and the merits of man. And how, how foolish then, how fallen man wants to exalt himself to secure his own salvation. That's what's behind all of this. Riches, status, likes, all this kind of stuff can make you drunk with yourself. So when we see the, the stars of society, the people that media likes to put forward as the greats, the achievers of this world. I think it's sad. We must think of Babylon. Our hearts should break, not rejoice. Because man, as I am, as we all are, we tend to forget who we are. The Bible says that we are mere dust. Perhaps we need to identify a similar root of arrogance that can spring up like an insidious weed in our own lives to be great among men. Among the first things a Christian will recognize as he comes to the gospel is how small he is and how great God is. It is simply our unworthiness. You know, if Babylon is a picture of the, is a prototype of building a house of scoundrels and pride, instead as believers, our focus then should always be on the glory of the house of God, of what he is building, how high he is, how great he is, how secure he is, how great our master builder is, who gains everything all that he does is gained with honest good, good things, right things, and lasting things. If Babylon crumbles, God's kingdom increases and stands secure. Remember that those who dwell in the shelter of the Almighty are immovable, are impenetrable, and they will have a substance that is eternal. 
Isn't God then worthy of our highest pursuits, especially when we consider the woe that rests upon Babylon? And so let us learn then, as Christians, to focus on a kingdom that cannot be broken, and from there to take our callings and to work with diligence, to work with honesty, and to work with humility. Work. As hard as you work at the physical things, but also work in the spiritual things. Labor at them. Work at stirring the embers alive of contentment and of gratitude. Because if you remember in Romans 1, one of the sins that is listed in that long litany, it always grips me. It says, neither were they thankful. Contentment and thankfulness are like guardrails to protect us from pride. And those who reflect on eternal things are best suited to manage earthly things. Brings me to the second point, a shameful house. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. Notice, thou hast consulted shame to thy house. Do you see the shift between verse 9 and verse 10 into the persons? Remember in verse um, 9, it's him. Woe to him. That's third person. But now there's a shift that takes place in verse 10. Thou, you, have consulted shame to thy house. You see that shift? The first verse is describing This verse is prescribing or giving a diagnosis as a doctor would. The one tells us what is, this one tells us what ought to be. And so this is God's diagnosis of Babylon's actions. But Babylon, it says, has consulted shame. They've intended, they've planned, they've devised. And in all their plans, they went against God's will. And so God says, your plan will be met with shame. Public disgrace is what you really are bringing in all your planning. And there's a lesson in here for us. Because if our, our planning does not correspond to the ways of Scripture, we're actually planning shame, disgrace. And so let us take the Scripture as the foundation, as the the, the undergirding, the basement, as it were, to build up our plans. That's thinking well, or else we will consult shame. But remember, there was examples of this in the Bible. You think of Achan. He was part of the conquest of Jericho, but he planned to take some of the, the holy stuff, and he brought disgrace, not just to himself, but to Israel, because Israel fell after that. And he brought down his own family. Remember? The whole household gets stoned. And so Nebuchadnezzar would bring shame to himself and to his posterity. Now remember, this whole prophecy of woe is written from the perspective that all of this still has to take place. Habakkuk is preaching or prophesying at the front end of everything. Babylon hasn't even taken over Judah yet, and God already tells us exactly what's going to happen, exactly what resides in Babylon's heart, and what he will do about it. Didn't you see the majestic sovereignty of God in all these things? It's really quite amazing that it would go this way. It is a reversal of what man may think as he sees looming threats. God diagnoses the hearts. Who can imagine such an upset? I think there's a reminder in this for us. Because so often we see nations building as we see right now. NATO is preparing for war against Russia. We see major conflict in the Middle East. We see 
uh, just a looming presidential race happening in the states that can affect world powers in a big way and we can look at all of these things and we can be taken up in the heat of the moment in the jeers and cheers of society and we can get worried we can get fretting ourselves nail-biting and wondering what's gonna go on just remember the foundation because this all happened this is all prophesied before it all took place and God simply says I will turn the glory of the proud into shame enough said Enough said. Don't worry. Don't worry. God will turn the glory of the proud into shame. We're okay. Proverbs 10.7 says this. The memory of the just is blessed. But the name of the wicked shall rot. That's all we need to know. Now as we remember the future of a house a dynasty of a legacy was important. Do you remember opposite to Babylon there was another house at play here. The house of David residing in Judah, in Jerusalem. Remember David was going to build a house for the Lord? But God says no, you won't build a house for me. I'll build a house for you. And thine own house, he says, and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Second Samuel 7, 16. And so the link between the house of God that David wanted to build, the temple, and the actual dweller of the temple, God, to the household of man is given in that text that God himself is the only one that can build lasting earthly houses. Now, how good was Judah at the time of this prophecy? How was the house of David faring in this time? Not good. The Davidic king at this time was Jehoiakim. And he had given attention to building the wrong house because he was busy with his own lavish building projects over the backs of his own people. He was lining his pockets over the, the, at the cost of the poor of his own kingdom. So the house of David is not doing well at all. And so now we see a collision of two houses. Babylon's house and David's house. And it seems, this is the interesting thing, it seems David's house is going to get destroyed. That's why Habakkuk is like, what's going on? It seems, as the text says, that he has cut off many people, including the house of David. It seems that if in the judgment of Judah is a judgment on the house of David and is done, that's what it looks like. But there is a difference in the judgment of the house of Babylon and the house of David, isn't there? The house of David has risen from the ashes because God keeps his word that the house of David would not fail. The son of David today reigns forever and ever, and he is building a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. The king of Israel reigns supreme today. And so take hope, take joy, because Babylon will fall and Jesus reigns. There's hope in that. And now I want to turn to the sobering statement at the end of this verse. Look at the phrase, and has sinned against thy soul. In cutting off many people, Babylon was forfeiting his own life. Almost every commentator, as I was looking through this text, brought up this set of verses from Proverbs 1. And you notice how many times I've quoted Proverbs? This whole idea of the wisdom literature, the wisdom of life, keeps coming back. Proverbs 1, 18 and 19. And they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. That's what's at stake, their own lives. They lay privily. They, they lurk for others, but it's going to get themselves... So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away 
the life of the owners thereof. They think they're getting ahead, but God has already instilled principles of wisdom that if you live like this, you're actually forfeiting your own life. To sin against your soul has eternal consequences. The Bible will say the wages of sin is death. The Puritan John Trapp tells a story of the Pope in the times of Maximilian, who was the then king of Bohemia, which I believe, if my geography is right, is now in Germany, but you may correct me on that later. Either way, he promised all kinds of privileges and promises to this king if this king would not allow Lutheranism in the kingdom and would bow down to the Rome, uh, to the uh, Roman Catholic Church. And you know what Maximilian's answer is? He says this, I thank your holiness, but my soul's health is dearer to me than all the things of this world. And that's the answer we need to give when we're tempted to build these kingdoms here for us, over the backs of others. Is your soul worth more than all the kingdoms of this world? What would be your answer? Would you be willing to exchange your soul for riches here? Would you be willing to give up your life eternally for the approval and praise of people here? Now, you may build cities. Some of you may be incredible achievers. And that's great if God has given you those gifts. But if you build it as a city of men, as Cain did, it will come to naught. You may accomplish great things in business. You may do great things in your home. You may, you may be liked in this world. How will you fare on Judgment Day? Will God like what you have done? Have you ever asked, what value can I place on eternity? Oh, if you're an unconverted person sitting here this morning... You might be able to be here and put on a really good face at church, sit quietly, smile when people smile at you, sing the songs. But what is the status of your soul? Will you be thrown into the same hell that awaited Nebuchadnezzar? Is your conscience clear before the Almighty? His approval is the only one that matters. Perhaps... You're sitting here today, and the words, woe, thunder in your guilty conscience. So we dwell on that. Let's move to the third point, to look how this moves, to see the answer to all of this. For the stone, or it's a speaking house, the third point. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. This is a final, very graphic image of God's diagnosis and perfect prediction of what will take place. The stones and the beams of wood are the very homes Babylon has built with violence and greed, and these houses will cry out of Babylon's guilt. Notice it says stones, not bricks. Bricks were more indigenous to Babylon. Stones were more indigenous to Israel. In other words, they are dwelling in the homes of the Israelites or have transplanted the stones of Israel to build their little empires. They are stolen goods. The beam, that word in the Hebrew is only used here in the entire Bible. It most likely refers to the beams in the rafters of luxurious homes and palaces as opposed to the homes of reed and mud that were used by commoners. So these are the, the wealthy, the established, the rich homes, the mansions of Babylon that we're talking about here. But notice, the stones cry out and the beams answer. Do you see that, what's going on? It's called antiphony, sounding off against one another. 
It's like a chorus is what it is, a two-part chorus. They're singing together in harmony and yet distinct, speaking of everything Babylon has done. John Calvin says this, there will be a striking harmony in every part of the building and will cry out, woe. But everything he says in its due order, there will be no confusion with respect to God's judgment here. But as music has distinct sounds, so also the stones will respond to the wood and the wood to the stones so that there may be, as it were said, corresponding voices, but speaking and singing one melody. As we see in the Bible, thorns and thistles bear witness to Adam's sin. We have seen in the Bible blood, the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. We have heard Jesus pronounce that the stones would cry out if these people would stop worshiping him and honoring him. So we see in the Bible many times that many times that although man may not cry out, God's creation will witness for man's or against man's accomplishments. God has his witnesses everywhere. The chairs we sit on belong to him. The stars in the high heavens are his to behold everything that goes on on earth. He personifies the created realm under man to remind us that we are accountable in any place. What you do on your phone in your basement when there's nobody around and everybody is away from the family is seen by the Almighty. There's an irony to this music. Because what does Babylon do as she accumulates her wealth? She brings in the most noble, powerful, talented people from the nations. And what do they do? They bring, in, bring them into their parties. And what do they tell them? Make music for us while we get drunk, while we bask, while we gloat. They always had choruses, choirs minstrels, people making music and sounds, and while basking in their ill-gained luxury, God says, you will hear a different song, and it will be sung as a woe to you, and he declares it ahead of time. Every part of the building is speaking here, the stones, the walls, the timber, everything. It was built by plunder, and it cries out, guilty, guilty, guilty as a song that gets stuck in your head all day and it resonates, so God uses the witnesses of those things they have accomplished around them and the conscience speaks and echoes as a chamber in their mind and you can't get rid of it. Have you ever, do you know what it means to be stuck with the guilty conscience for something you've done and you try to get rid of it, you try to, to, to push it under the rug, you try to, to appease what's echoing in your mind? Do you know what I'm talking about? What it is to have a guilty conscience. The Puritan John Flavel tells this story. He talks about a man named Sir John Cheek. He was the former tutor of King Edward VI of England. Now John Cheek, after Bloody Mary comes to the throne, guess what happens to this guy? He gets thrown into prison for his faith. And they say to him, Sir John, if you will renounce Jesus Christ, we will let you out of prison. Prison was rough tough. There was torture involved. So what did Sir John Cheek do? He renounced the faith and he walked out a free man. But Flavel says this, he was given his liberty but he lost his comfort. He says this, the sense of his apostasy his falling away and the daily sight of the cruel butcheries inflicted upon others for their constant adherence to the truth, they never gave up, made such deep impressions upon his broken spirit. It brought his life to a speedy end. His conscience would not let him go. In the quiet walls of his home, conscience declared his guilt. If the first woe we looked at last time speaks of a debt 
that will eventually be pilled, paid, sorry, the plunderer will be plundered. This woe stresses that evil and its fruits do not provide a secure foundation for our future. The stones and rafters say something else. Think about it. There's no people involved here. You've maybe seen or heard of mighty billionaires, rich people, who have no friends. They're lonely. They look at the walls, they look at the ceiling. But nobody likes them. I think there's an irony that it's stones and beams that are speaking. It's the only people close to him. He has no relationships, no good relationships. Because when you, when you have it over the backs of others, eventually people don't like you anymore. How many people aren't lonely in their hollow castles? Perhaps you've got a lot of stuff, but you're lonely. Maybe you're busy gathering the stuff, thinking it'll make people like you. That's not how relationships work. We see here security is not found apart from wholesome relationships and the foundational relationship that orients all other relationship is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the relationship that matters most. And therefore, dear people, if you've come here this morning guilty, if you've come here this morning with your compass straying and the needle doesn't quite seem to be going in the right direction, make it your chief business today to know that you are right with God, to meditate on Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his hope, his kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. See that God's household is the one you're busy investing in, building, making the most of, telling others about Jesus, his world, his kingdom, his lordship in my life. The Bible says of Jesus Christ that he is a master builder. And it says in, in Ephesians 2, 22 and, 21 and 22, it says, In him, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Now, the word temple there is interesting. A holy temple. It's more than a house. It's a temple, a dwelling place. And then it says this, in whom ye also, the church, plural, are builded together. Not loneliness. Together. For an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's a house worth building, being part of. You're not going to be lonely. Can anything be more secure than a soul indwelt by the Spirit of the living God? Can there be any more blessed life than one that rests on the merits and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? The Bible says we are his house. Peter says he also has lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And so rather than stones and beams singing choruses of shame and woe, the church of Jesus Christ, we all as stones should lift our voices to God, not in woe, but in adoration, in wonder, we sing the songs of Zion to praise, to the praise of his glorious grace. We sang it this morning. Every time we echo to the praise of his glorious grace. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, unlike Darius, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin, and the empires that right now are militating and shaking their fists to the Almighty, unlike those of the city of man, learn this. Human rule is only admirable if it is ruling to honor the name of God. All authority we see here derives from God because he pronounces the last word. Thou hast built thine house and a woe is upon it. Everything comes from him, is derived from him, belongs to him, and ultimately we see this, returns to him. It 
is something we must remember as we look at the rulers of this world. And therefore, in the Bible, at the very end, in Revelation chapter 4, it talks about 24 elders. What do they represent? 12 and 12. It represents the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles who represent the church of all ages. And it simply says this. It says, therefore, the, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat upon the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. And cast what? Their crowns, all their dignities, all their worth, all the things they have accomplished. They cast them down before the throne of the Lamb. They have nothing in themselves. They didn't achieve these things. They look to God and say, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure. They are and were created. And so people of God, let us join in. Let us join in to ascribe to God all the honors, all the crowns, and all the accomplishments. Let's return them to him. Let's boast of his name. Let's raise his name up on high. His accomplishments will echo in the hearts and lives of believers for all eternity. Because we, believers, as his household, are a forgiven household, a redeemed people. Instead of shame is honor. Instead of evil is perfect gain. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that even as we look at the woes upon Babylon, Chaldea, we know that you are building a city that cannot be shaken. Oh God, please give us humility. Help us to do away with self-aggrandizements. To look to Jesus as the great master builder. who will try every man's work. Now, Lord, may the word of God dwell richly among us. In Jesus' name.